Welcome to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox, from Grammaticus.co. And today, we're going to be talking about Numa Pompilius, but we'll call him Numa for short. He was the second, much more pious king in the Romans after Romulus, and his parallel is Lycurgus, the Spartan lawgiver we heard about last month. Numa balances out these bellicose Romans with religious rites focused on bringing the people together, and so he reminds us of a lot of what Lycurgus did, but in the opposite way, where Lycurgus had used war to bind the Spartans together as equals in virtue. Numa binds the people together around religion and peace. There's a line from the life of Lycurgus that I feel serves as a great transition to the life of Numa. Just as an individual is happy who practices virtue and possesses inner peace, the happiness of the state demands virtuous citizens living together in harmony. And so... Of the seven kings of Rome, it seems that Plutarch respects Numa the most and sees Numa as the height of the monarchy. Romulus may have been a good start or perhaps a necessary evil start, but Numa really peaks and the rest of the monarchy is downhill and off a cliff, as we might say, because the next Roman life we get to is Publicola, who is one of the early consuls in Rome right after they've kicked out the monarchs. So we should just dive right into Numa's life, though, and really get to know him. He's another person who, in Roman history, will see that the Romans had to mythologize these legendary kings, because even if these people actually existed, because the Gauls sacked the city of Rome in 390 BC, all of the records from before that year were burned. And so anybody living after 390 BC had no access to those records. Well, guess what? All of our sources that are written down about the history of Rome come from after 390 BC. So take that for what it's worth and keep that as a historical perspective. Obviously, what I said about Lycurgus, who probably didn't exist or may have existed, but didn't do all the things we said, still applies to Numa. It's more important the stories the Romans tell about Numa and the stories they believe about Numa than it is whether or not he actually existed because of what Numa's stories tell us about how the Romans perceive themselves. So that can be a tough one. Hopefully I don't belabor that point too much. Numa's early life then is associated with another really early philosopher who's mythical and mystical and religious all at once, and that's Pythagoras. So we're going to be hearing a lot of parallels between Numa's laws, Numa's thoughts, and Pythagoras's teachings. Plutarch is positive that they could not have lived in the same century in the same time period, but It's important to remember that Pythagoras was on the Italian peninsula. He was a Greek speaker, but he lived on the Italian peninsula in southern Italy. And so it's not completely far-fetched to associate the two, and Plutarch has some theories of his own there, as you'll see in the life. But So Romulus, when we left off from the life of Romulus, Romulus was either ascending into heaven or murdered and his body was removed. The... Roman state immediately falls into civil strife, and the patricians, which are basically synonymous with the senators, decide to set up this interregnum where each of them is going to rule for about a week. One senator will have the power of the monarch, but only for a week at a time. This actually survives a little bit longer than the regular Roman people are comfortable with. They're afraid that the senators are going to turn the Roman government into an oligarchy, and so they start asking for a monarch. 
But we have this problem that we united two different peoples. We united the Romans and the Sabines by stealing their women and making somebody else's daughters their wives. And then this slow unification of these two peoples has been fraught, to say the least, even though they're not at each other's throats anymore. Numa is one of these Sabines. And so his early life ends up sounding to us very Spartan. Right? We just finished Lycurgus's life and we're comparing these two now. So he lives simply, nothing fancy, nothing ornate, right? He marries a mortal and then he's married to her till she dies about 13 years later. And then he moves off out of the city. He's not in the city of Rome. He's in another Sabine city, but he moves out of that city and into the forest and the countryside. And there we get cross over this line into the mystical where Numa is supposedly his next wife is a nymph named Egeria. And from her, he gains all kinds of wisdom. Again, Plutarch reports, but he doesn't necessarily believe everything he is reporting. So that's the Numa that the Romans end up getting to know is this man of simple habits, simple living, well-respected for his honesty and straightforwardness, who has an immense amount of wisdom available to him that the Romans may or may not know the source of at the time. So obviously the Sabines want a Sabine king and the Romans want a Roman king. So they come up with a compromise where the Romans will select a Sabine and then the Sabines have to approve, or the Sabines will select a Roman and the Romans have to approve. The Romans demand that they are able to select the Sabine, and they pick Numa. As soon as they announce the name of Numa, the Sabines are like, yep, we got it, we're in, yes. And then we get a little bit of Plato and Aristotle for kids. So we're going to see a lot of hints and preparations for reading Plato and Aristotle later, particularly in this life of Numa, but in all the lives of the lawgivers, because law, education, and philosophy for Plutarch, as well as for Plato and Aristotle, are intimately bound up. The law really is the educator of the people, as we saw in Lycurgus, or maybe the educator is the laws. Right? Education gives us the strongest forms of law. So one of the ways in which we see the earlier writings of Plato and Aristotle fulfilled in Numa's life is that Numa refuses when he's offered full power as a, the monarch of the Romans. That's definitely a sign of the philosopher king. He should be the man wise enough to rule who doesn't want to rule. So his father and the gods talk him into it, the gods by giving signs and his father by telling him that he basically has two options. He can either temper the Romans and control their warlike energy in a good way, you know, channel it to good ends, so to speak, or he can actually turn them into lovers of good laws and durable peace, as he calls it. So, convinced by his father and the omens of the gods, he accepts, and he immediately steps into Rome and does a religious ritual on the Capitoline. So here we have, we're going to be introduced to all of the importance, not of Roman law, but of Roman religion, which has the force of law, and sometimes, as we'll see, the more Romans we study, can be higher than the force of law for what it allows or disallows. So he does augury, and augury is when you go up on a mountaintop and you use a special stick that's in the picture of Numa that's in the show notes called a litus, and you split the sky into four quadrants. Then you watch those quadrants for the flights of birds. We saw Romulus do something similar to this when he was up on the Capitoline building the wall, the first wall of Rome when he saw the 12 vultures. 
And then it becomes a problem of interpretation, right? 12 versus 6. But that's in the life of Romulus. His auguries, they wait until they see a positive sign from the birds. They get a positive sign and they move on. So nothing bad happens. Gods obviously approve of Numa before, during, and after him taking the ring. He takes Romulus's bodyguard and disbands it. So we see that there's a an element of tyranny that he's rejecting. This bodyguard is going to make any anyone in Plutarch's audience immediately think of the Praetorian Guard, which Augustus sets up as his personal legion living in the city of Rome, right? Soldiers in the city of Rome, and which are not disbanded until after Constantine. That's 400 years of a personal armed bodyguard around the person of the emperor. And often the men who end up choosing the emperor anyway, right? So they become the most powerful men in Rome. So he then adds a few priesthoods. We get a couple different words for priest in this life. We get flamen, which sounds a lot like the word flame, and is etymologically related to that element of sacrifice or offering or fire being associated with going upwards towards the gods. He adds a flamen or a priest of Romulus. And then he gives us a few etymologies. And I, th- I think I've talked about this in one of the lives before, but these etymologies are often also etiologies, right? An etiology explains why something is the way it is. And an etymology explains what a word meant originally when it was first coined. The true meaning or truest meaning of the word. So these are going to be both ands for Plutarch. He thinks that by pulling back on the etymology, he's explaining why it is that the Romans use this particular word for this particular thing. So we we continue this religious conversation with a bunch of Pythagorean parallels. And here's where it's probably important for us to talk a little bit about Pythagoras. He's famous, obviously, as a mathematician, the Pythagorean theorem, something we all still learn because it's true. But he was much more than that. Pythagoras was obsessed with numbers and was absolutely convinced that the entire world could be made sense of just through the integers. So discovering things like irrational numbers, square root of two, pi, things like that, uh, they really threw the Pythagoreans who really wanted the whole universe to be broken down into integers, into natural numbers. And... They were often vegetarians. They lived very simple lives. They were this early philosophical school that looks almost monastic in the rules it follows and its intense obedience to the master, who is Pythagoras while he's alive. Because they're vegetarians, they don't sacrifice blood animals to the gods. They sacrifice grains and wine and, you know, other natural materials made from the land. And Pythagoras's focus in religion is that is man's relationship with the gods. So Pythagoras's focus actually in everything is probably harmonia, right? Harmony, making things make sense, be equitable, be just. So Pythagoras's math flows over into every aspect of his philosophy and life and way of living, which is interesting. And that, that's the same for, for Numa. So Numa's second level of priests are the pontifices, or the pontifices, the singular of that is the pontifex. We might still recognize that term as a term that has lasted all the way through and is now used in reference to the Roman Catholic Pope, the pontifex maximus he's called. But originally, the pontifex maximus was the highest priestly office in Rome. So it's similar to a level of archonship in Athens called the archon basileus, 
whose job was to make sure that all of the festivals happened in the way they were supposed to happen and when they were supposed to happen. So the Pontifex main power is actually over the calendar, deciding which days are Fastus and which days are Ne Fastus. That's a great deal of power because as we'll see, as Numa sets in motion Roman religion, calling a a day nefas or a day on which the gods do not approve means that all political business has to be tabled and certain kinds of work even can't be done inside the city. So the Pontifex Maximus really is an interpreter of the will of the gods. He's this direct line to the gods, which is why Plutarch takes this opportunity to give us the etymology of Pontifex. And it's funny because he rejects the one that is most commonly accepted today, which is that of the bridge builder. Fex coming from facio meaning to make and pontus meaning bridge. So the pontifex must be the guy that builds the bridge between the men and gods. But he rejects that and he actually thinks that it comes from words for powerful or able. And he wants to emphasize the power that the pontifices or the pontifex has over the Roman people, which is an interesting way to think about it. And then we get into a long description of the Vestal Virgins. So Vesta is cognate with the Greek word Hestia, and both of them are the word for hearth. And so there's an importance of fire in every civilization, of course, but often the fire that you would relight everything from comes from the sacred fire, this fire at the hearth in Delphi, which is considered by the Greeks the center of the entire universe, or the fire in the heart of Rome. The Vestal Temple is a circular temple in the middle of the city of Rome, which in some ways becomes the center of the universe, according to the Romans. And so the Vestal Virgins are women who take a 30-year vow of virginity to guard this sacred flame, and they become associated with guarding almost any important secret. As a matter of fact, Julius Caesar will later deposit his last will and testament with the Vestal Virgins. So they just become like the safety deposit box of ancient Rome for important stuff. But early on, they're just associated with the trust of the sacred flame. So any other flame can be lit from any other flame. You know, your flame goes out in your house and you need a light. So you ask your neighbor for one. But if the city of Rome is sacked, for example, and the flame goes out, that flame can only be rekindled directly from the sun. So you can use the magnifying glasses and mirrors. You can rub sticks together. What you need to do is find a natural means of creating heat in order to bring the fire back. You cannot just, you know, run a candle from a nearby city or bring some coals in from a fire that had just burned down. You have to start the fire right there by natural means. So the Vestal Virgins also have more rights than the average Roman woman. They can own their own property without having to have a father or a husband. But they also, along with their rights, come greater responsibilities. They'll be flogged or scourged with whips for committing certain faults, maybe letting out smaller, minor secrets. And for major faults, like going against their vow of virginity, they are buried alive. Plutarch takes quite some time describing exactly how that happens. Speaking of burial, we use that as a nice segue into the way Romans talk about funerals and burials. So you, we're probably noticing a trend here now that we've seen a number of lawgivers, but Plutarch really looks for a certain number and type of laws that give you a sense of what's important to all legal structures. We are always, in every life, we're going to 
to talk about the laws related to marriage, divorce, and children. In all of the lawgivers we talk about, we're going to talk about the laws related to death, funerals, burial, and mourning. So sometimes we'll see Plutarch approving of several different things. The Romans never buried their people inside of the city. They always buried them along the roads outside of the city walls. Yet, in the life of Lycurgus, we saw Plutarch approving of the fact that Lycurgus allowed Romans to be buried inside the city walls and made them thus less afraid of death. We have two other minor priesthoods, though, that come up with this sort of related to death because they both come out of the notion of war and the notion of plague. So the first priesthood is the Fetiales, And they give the Romans this religious sense of a just war versus an unjust war. The Fetiales are technically the guardians of peace, but they're also the priests that have to give their approval before the Romans can go to war. And when they don't, they make a mistake not just against men or natural law, but against the gods. So it's really that a Fetialis priest has to approve of the war for it to be a just war. Because he is the last one to give the final warnings to the enemy. If you don't stop doing this, we're going to have to fight you. If they're the priests that give the ultimatums. And there was one time that this didn't happen. Where a hot-headed Roman against the Gauls was sent as an ambassador. And then when the embassy breaks down and fails. When this guy named Fabius Ambustus is refused. He immediately takes up arms. He doesn't go back to the Roman people. He doesn't get the Fetial priests involved. He is a hothead. And he runs to his sword, grabs it, and starts fighting on the side of the allies of Rome instead of first declaring war. And this leads to the greatest disaster in the Roman Republic, which is the sack of the Gauls. So Plutarch essentially sees the sack of the Gauls, who are able to take over the entire city of Rome except for the tiny hill of the Capitoline, as the direct result of the impious approach to war, of not making sure that the gods were on their side first before going to war. So in another instance, we see that at an unexplained and unknown time, but sometime during the life of Numa, there's a plague that is infecting the citizens. And while Numa is thinking and figuring out how to get rid of this plague, which is often considered to have come from the gods, a bronze shield falls out of the sky, of which Numa demands they make 11 copies so that they will never lose the real shield and no one will ever know which shield to steal. Ooh, that was hard to say. We see that this feast that is associated with these shields comes from the Salii priests who are supposed to be associated with purification and purgation of the plague. So once they make the right sacrifices and protect this bronze shield and put it in its right place, the plague goes away. And these priests now every year in February jump around with these shields at the Lupercalia festival in February, which we saw was important in Romulus's time and becomes important again in Julius Caesar's time as the sort of end of winter and a beginning of spring cleaning almost. We'll get later in this life, but very soon the months of the year and their Roman names, almost all of which we still use. And February is that month associated with purgation and cleaning and preparation. So it's that which you know spring's just around the corner and so you need to get cleaned up and ready to go, brush off your tools and get out there. We get another Pythagorean parallel here with the rest and quiet as an essential for worship, almost like a receptivity that you have to have with the gods. So Numa is upping the ante, so to speak, on what could be the standard pagan view of the gods, which is a quid pro quo, where as long as I give the right sacrifices or have checked the right box at the right altar, 
you can think of the any of the Homeric ways of starting prayers. Oh, Zeus, you know, never have I passed an altar of yours without burning fat thigh bones. It seems that Numa wants a deeper bond between men and the gods. He wants a bond of trust, a bond of relationship slightly. So he did not want his citizens to see or hear a religious observance without giving it their full attention. If you were just a box checker, if you were just like, hey, Zeus, I just, you know, need to burn the right piece of the right ram enough times of the year that you don't strike me down, then you wouldn't necessarily need to give it your full attention. So all of these details that become associated with Roman ritual and Roman religion really require the full attention. You have to take X number of steps before turning around, before putting black beans in your mouth, before saying the names of all of your ancestors in the order in which they died. All of those are the typical things of Roman ritual and religion, and they require you to be paying attention. And there's a last one that we get where Plutarch begins to try to explain why Numa has some of these things. So he has you turn around once and sit down after praying, almost like a dog before it lays down, you know, has to turn around a few times. But Plutarch doesn't make the parallel with the dog. Sorry, that was all me. He talks about sitting as a, he mentions that the sitting is a position of receptivity and confidence. So you need to stay in silence around or in the presence of the god in order to receive something from the god. This is a piety that a lot of pagans are not going to go for. We can think of several poets in particular that seem to tell stories about the gods that make them absolutely ridiculous and make them somebody that you wouldn't want to sit in the temple and wait to receive what wisdom they have to give to you. Ovid's Metamorphoses comes to mind, but also Lucretius's De Rerum Natura as well. So Plutarch is a little bit worried about this going to an extreme. He's a little bit worried that the Romans grow too superstitious under Numa and that they care too much about all of the powers all around them. The uh, the Greek word for superstition about which Plutarch wrote an essay in the Moralia is daimonia, which is basically the fear of daimons all around you. A daimon is any sort of intervening spirit between the gods and men. So more powerful than men, less powerful than the gods, often sent by the gods or doing the will of the gods. And so a superstitious person is someone who is afraid of and sees a daimon behind everything that happens. For Plutarch, that's that's too much. It's It's gone too far. And he's worried that this becomes one of the natural consequences of Numa. This is probably one of the only criticisms of Numa in the entire life. But there are two more important things that Numa does before he revises the calendar and that's he really brings two important points to the roman people and sets them up as gods the first is fides which is probably post-christian translated as faith and comes to mean a totally different thing but pre-christian for the romans themselves it was much more like trust and it was the kind of trust that you put in each other the strongest oath that a roman can take is an oath by fides and so maybe verbal contract might be the best word for fides. And the Romans pride themselves on this reputation of reliability. As a matter of fact, you know, we can look in the second Maccabees, book of second Maccabees, you see a Jewish communication or a Hebrew communication with Rome, and they're asking them for an alliance against the Hellenistic successors of Alexander the Great, asking for an alliance from the Romans because they know that the Romans are faithful in their alliances. So this is the Hebrews using the Romans' pride in their own reputation 
as a means of achieving a lasting alliance with them. I don't know if we have the Roman response in the record, but it's an interesting example. Fides does not cease to be important to the Romans, and Plutarch knows that. He's talking to Romans who are now 800 years beyond Numa's lifetime, and Fides, the fact that a Roman can say he's going to do it, or the Roman state, the whole Roman state will say, we're going to defend this, we're going to protect this person, we're going to not allow this to happen, and then they follow through. So the other thing that he finds is he marks the terminus, or the boundaries of the Roman territory. This also becomes and has become really important in Plutarch's own time that Augustus and Trajan are the two emperors who sort of have reached the expanse of the empire as far as it will go, right? Under Augustus, you've gotten all the way to the Rhine and the Danube River. You haven't quite gotten England yet, but he's about to. Some of his children will get England. And then under Trajan, of course, you cross the Danube and take a huge chunk of central Europe, but that doesn't last very long. So the idea is that we want to pick and the Romans naturally pick these natural boundaries. First, they took over the peninsula of Italy. Then they took over the Western Mediterranean, North Africa, Spain, Southern France. Then they took over the Eastern Mediterranean and Gaul at the same time. And they kept hitting these natural boundaries, oceans, rivers, forts, walls, roads, ditches, right? They, they could take a natural boundary and make it very defensible. Obviously, they did for hundreds of years. The Danube and the Rhine and England and Hadrian's Wall, all of these places were both natural and partially fortified limits of the Roman Empire. And so that that goes back to Numa. It's that idea of the sacred. We take this so seriously that we're going to mark it out. We're going to defend it. And we're going to make sure that it becomes Roman. He divides the land, which we saw like Kyrgyz do. He does it differently. He just gives the poorest people farms because he would rather they be working in some way that they can make money for themselves than not. That land for the poorest classes will also be a theme in Roman history. He divides the people by their trade and craft and he splits up Romans and Sabines and puts them in the same guilds. So there's a Sabine shoemaker and a Roman shoemaker working side by side. This is his secret plan to make the Romans and the Sabines feel like one people. And then finally, he revises the calendar. It's one of the last things that Plutarch focuses on. And we get a really cool excursus where he starts with March and goes all the way through the whole year and then ends at January. And we'll see why Plutarch does that in a sec. But let's start with March. He starts with March because in very ancient Rome, March was the first month of the year. I think this makes more sense. It would make more sense to start the year not in the middle of winter, like we do now in January 1st, but towards the spring, because it seems like the whole year is starting over as we start the spring. And we're Roman, or at least from this perspective, we're Roman, and Mars is one of the most important gods. He is probably the father of Romulus and Remus. So putting him at the head of the calendar makes sense from a Roman perspective as well. So March is the first month. April, he thinks, comes from either Aphrodite, who with love you can associate, right, spring and renewal and all the good things that happen in April, or aperire, which is to open. That is to say, flowers open up and buds and blooms and everything opens up sort of to the sky and reaches up. May is named for Maya, the mother of Mercury, and June is named for Juno. July and August at this time were called Quintilus and Sextilus which sounds, maybe, if you can hear it in there, some of your Latin, like Quintus for fifth and Sextilus for sixth, the fifth and sixth months. 
And then you start to see the pattern because September, October, November, and December are the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th months respectively. Now, if we start in March, all of those numbers make sense. July is the 5th month after March. August is the 6th month after March. September is the 7th month after March. October is the 8th month after March, etc., Sorry. So if you've ever wondered why December has tech decem in it, but is actually the 12th month, it's because the Romans used to start their year in the month of March, and December is still 10 months away from the month of March. So what else do we have? Then they would have had January and February would have been the end of winter, right? Those ending winter months would have been the end of the year. And January is named for Janus, who has two faces, and Plutarch's explanation of this is not that January is at the beginning of the year because it wasn't, right? Numa is the first well, one to change it from uh, from March to January. So you can't say he has two faces, so he's the god of transitions because there's no transition happening in January for the, for the extremely ancient Roman calendar. Instead, he thinks that the two faces of Janus really are... Janus was a historical king that brought mankind from a a beast-like state into a social animal who was willing to get involved in civilization. It's kind of an interesting uh, etymology. Not sure what I think about that. And then we have February, which we had mentioned earlier, is associated with the Salii priests and the Lupercalia festival and these rituals of pur- purification because Februa in Latin means t- purification or purgation. Or... And uh, we saw in the life of Romulus how February was an important time for that with the Lupercalia. So we're introduced to all of these months and we now get a sense that if we go back to, where are we? We're about 700 BC in this life. So the names of our months that we use in almost all of the languages of Western Europe go back, at least according to Plutarch's reckoning, 2,700 years. That's pretty cool. Uh, So he ends with that explanation about January, so that he can talk about the temple of Janus on the Capitoline. And Janus's temple is the temple of peace, so that when its doors are closed, when the gates to the temple are closed, the Romans are at peace. And for the entire reign of Numa, the gates of Janus remain closed. Only one other time in the Roman Republic's history will the gates be closed, and that's after the first time they defeat the Carthaginians in the First Punic War. And then Augustus tells us that during his principate, right, from 31 BC to about 14 AD, he closes them three times. Scholars debate about what the three times are, so I'm not going to try to tell you what the three times are. One of them is when he defeats Mark Antony, though. And so this means that Numa absolutely positively is the philosopher king of whom Plato speaks, because his brilliant and conspicuous example, as a virtuous leader, has fostered peace for the Romans for an entire generation, from when he ascends the throne to when he's done. It's pretty amazing. So then he tries to parse out Numa's wives and children, and we get, there's a sense here of, this is also where we began. The temptation is that anybody living 800 years after in a city like Rome that has become the capital of the Mediterranean world, they're going to be tempted to trace their lineage back to Numa through any means possible. And so he's very skeptical of, you know, the stories that he married a nymph and that there were five sons and five different families in Rome trace their ancestry back to Numa because it just seems to fit too neatly with what they're trying to do. 
And so in Numa's death, we get an image of Numa's life. In Numa's funeral, allies and friends pour into the city with gifts. The whole city mourns. Senators are carrying the litter that has his body. Priests of all kinds, right? Remember the four kinds that he gave to Rome, follow in the procession. And the entirety of the people of Rome, men, women, and children, are following behind, wailing and mourning. He's not cremated, he's buried. And we get a, an echo of Lycurgus here that he's buried in one stone coffin with another stone coffin next to him. And in that stone coffin are all the sacred books. He wants to bury the sacred books for the same reason that Lycurgus didn't want his laws written down. Lycurgus wanted his laws written in the hearts and minds of the men and women of Sparta. So too, what Numa has given Rome in the priesthoods, in the religion, in the rituals, in the precision, in the focus, in the relationships with the gods, he wants it to be written in their hearts and minds. So we get that it is the happy fate of all good and just men to be praised more after they are dead than when they lived. Not very many people, even in Plutarch's lives, are that cool that they will be praised even more after they are dead than when they were alive. And then he closes not with Numa's death, but with the kings that came after Numa. And he goes backwards. He says that the last king dies in exile. Uh, that's pretty lame. The three kings before that were assassinated on the throne. Okay, well, so not as much peace as we had under Numa. And then the one that rules immediately after Numa is so hostile. <laughs> His name is Tullus Hostilius. But he's so hostile to everything that Numa had instituted that he is struck down in the end of his life by a bolt of lightning from the gods. And we get that cool parallel where we ended the life of Lycurgus by talking about how his tomb had been struck by a bolt of lightning. And then we end the life of Numa Pompilius, not with anything Numa did being struck by lightning, but with Numa's impious and evil successor being struck by lightning. That about wraps it for this episode. I hope you're still enjoying the podcast and getting a lot out of these. You can find more information about the podcast, the show notes and everything at plutarch.life or grammaticus.co. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with a friend or leave a review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd love to hear your questions that you may be having as you struggle through reading or teaching Plutarch. You can contact me at grammaticus.co slash contact or tom at grammaticus.co. And as always, thank you for listening. And I hope I've inspired you to open Plutarch and let his lives affect yours. <laughs>